0: By early 1776, colonial America was at a tipping point. Tensions between the colonists and their British ruler, King George III, were escalating. The colonists were increasingly dissatisfied with British rule, but there was no consensus on what to do. The future was uncertain. The colonists weren't even entirely sure what they wanted, but they knew they wanted change. English-born American political activist Thomas Paine saw a clear solution. He published his ideas in his 1776 pamphlet, Common Sense. In the text, he proposed something radically empowering, something revolutionary, something that would take years to fully realize.
1: But it is the first chink in the armor of the kinds of aristocratic and monarchical justifications for government uh, that necessarily combines, as the idea of democracy does, not just a political system, but a fundamental sense of our basic human nature and our basic capacities and our basic obligations towards one another. So, I'm Carolyn Winterer, and I'm a professor of history at Stanford, and I teach early American history, especially the history of ideas.
0: Prior to 1776, the ruling class in Europe and its colonies was the nobility. Nobles were people born into powerful families who governed the masses, with the king or queen atop them all. These noble families passed down their wealth and power from generation to generation with little input from the people they ruled over. This was understood by all as completely normal and God-given. But Thomas Paine saw things differently. To him, monarchical rule was stifling, He believed the thing all humans have in common from birth is our five senses. And through consulting these senses, we have the ability to create a rational government for the people, by the people, independent of a single ruler.
1: This is an invitation to the common person to participate in an activity that for, since the beginning of human societies, had been the province of of an elite. And it's saying, no, um, every person can participate. And and that's where that extraordinary title comes into play.
0: Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I sat down with Professor Carolyn Winterer to discuss Thomas Paine's common sense. So how did um, Thomas Paine become Thomas Paine.
1: We don't have tons of biographical detail on him, but we do know that he was born in England uh, in 1737. But unlike many of the American founding fathers, he's he's not born to the social elite. He's in fact born low in the working classes. His father is a corset maker and he himself ultimately becomes a corset maker also. And you know, he, he holds various uh, other jobs. He's a customs house inspector, but by no stretch of the imagination is he you know, striding around in in a, in a powdered wig and and velvet knee breeches, he, he doesn't have the elite classical education of the founders, and so he kind of grinds his way through the lower stratum of the English working classes. And it's only in 1774 when he meets Ben Franklin in London that he they get they sort of hatch this idea that he will come to the land of opportunity, which is America, but that. That experience of really being pressed to the very bottom of society, I think, is profoundly influential for pain because he sees the hypocrisy of uh, elites posturing about the natural order being this way or that way. And he sees it for all of the, the genuine um, misery that it produces in people's lives, the hunger, the, the illness, and he has no patience for it.
0: In October of 1774, Payne left England and sailed to what was then the American colonies. He arrived in late November in Philadelphia, a city ripe with opportunity.
1: When we think of eighteenth century Philadelphia, we think of of the City of the Enlightenment for north america it 's the largest city it 's got a whole forty thousand people, um, which is huge you know by eighteenth century north American standards and it has a, a vibrant uh, printing culture it 's got all these institutions of civic participation that Ben Franklin himself had helped to found, like the Library company of Philadelphia. And, Uh, other such organisms. And and he does immediately go to work for one of the major um, magazines of the era. So he he tries his hand at, at writing for an American public.
0: Payne got a job as the editor of the Pennsylvania Magazine and began his career as a man of ideas.
1: And so he gets all these opportunities to sort of try his hand at writing. And he's done a little bit of writing in England, but this uh, shows him able to, to uh, write across a broad range of different topics from women's rights to, you know, what happened last Thursday at the town hall meeting, et cetera. So he, you know, he's, he's moving along on writing, but then he um, leaves that, that journal.
0: After a few months, Payne left the Pennsylvania magazine and focused his attention on the colony's relationship with their ruler, Great Britain. The colonists were becoming increasingly angry with British rule. They were unhappy with British trade policies and opposed the new system of taxes.
1: And then furthermore, by that time, in late 1775... There is fighting going on, right? We have had Lexington and Concord. The British are penned in the city of Massachusetts by George Washington's army. So they are fighting, but what they do not know is what they are fighting for. There is no common um, sense for what it is that they want from the British. Do they want a redress of colonial grievances and that they would then go back to status quo antebellum, right? The way things were before 1763 when, you know, it was a great relationship, everybody getting along, everybody knew their place. Um, Or do they want, you know, some kind of radical independence? And this is the the um kind of weird leftist ravings of people like Sam Adams right and and but there's no consensus across the colonies about what exactly they are doing they are at loose ends and this is the historical moment that Paine just boldly strides through right he's like i got this and <laughs> in january of 1776 is produced anonymously this pamphlet that we know as Common Sense. And the reason that that pamphlet is so incendiary and extraordinary is because it answers that question, what are we doing Uh, and, and what is all of this for?
0: In Common Sense, Payne makes a strong argument for colonial independence, and he does it with the everyday reader in mind. He wanted his ideas and arguments to be easily understood.
1: Common Sense comes in as a breath of fresh air. He speaks to common people in the language of common people. So people read it and they recognize echoes of a known world, but then he opens up a whole new universe of possibility for them. So, you know, that's why even almost 250 years later, this pamphlet seems so fresh because it is truly visionary because he does something that I would say, just as a historian of ideas, is one of the hardest things to do, which is to change people's minds. And Thomas Paine does that. He changes their minds across a spectrum of three or four major truths um, in a way that's really extraordinary.
0: How does Paine use words and motifs um, in this text to, um, to both meet people where they are um, and then help move them in a different way? I mean, what, what are some of the techniques that he
1: uses there? Yeah, I would single out two here. Um, one is he uses uh, ridicule and absurdity to their best effect. What he does is is to take a truth that people think is established. And then to show how lame and um, ridiculous it is. And he says that a number of times, this is ridiculous. Okay, so one of the things that's ridiculous to him is the British monarchy. Now you're not supposed to say that because that's like making a threat on the life of the US president, that's treasonous. Um, so, but what he says is how ridiculous is it that we take the person, we take a person and give them a lot of power and then we shut them off from the means of information, and which is exactly true. How is it that you can wield so much power that you are the king of England, but then you are kind of cloistered from what the reality of the world is? That George III never leaves London, never. He's just like there. And in fact, there's no reigning British monarch that visits North America until after the Civil War, which is extraordinary. So he says that that is ridiculous. And so then of course you put the pamphlet down, you say, well, you know what? You're right. I never thought about it that way. It is not only wrong, it is ridiculous. The second thing that he does is he uses the power of metaphor to their best effect. And so he um, he likes, for example, to use the metaphor of parent and child. And this is how the colonial relationship was uh, described in the 18th century, that Britain was the mother, the colonies were the baby. And in fact, there was a lot of broadsides that showed Britannia nursing her baby colony, uh, which is like, we think of that like how weird, but that's how they... They, how they talked about the relationship. And he's, he turns that on its head and he says, what kind of parent would eat their own children? Uh, what, this is child abuse.
0: Payne also points out to his American readers the empowering size of their American continent compared to the relatively small island of Great Britain that governs them. He turns their gaze west, beyond the colonies, all the way to what is today California. California.
1: He gives Americans a vision beyond the 50 miles of coastline that they have inhabited for the last 150 years. And he says, yours is a continent. But then he goes into ridicule mode and he says, how silly is it that an island should govern a continent? Now, you think you read that and you're like, yeah, right. That's ridiculous. Now, of course, it's not ridiculous. Right. And why shouldn't an island govern a continent? It's no more ridiculous than anything else. But he makes it for the first time seem Ridiculous. Um, so he has at his command in his arsenal of pamphleteering um, tools these two finely honed tools that uh, ingratiate him to many many people who might normally not want to listen to somebody who is from the bottom of society. But he's such a delight uh, to read because he does that that thing that all you know all public speakers and all writers really have to learn how to do, which is to persuade the audience to join your side of things, that you go into the world, not as you versus me, but as an us. And once you have done that, um, your, your task is much easier.
0: What was the age of pamphlets? What were pamphlets? And how did um, this supernal pamphlet get distributed and read and, and you know, heard?
1: Well, the 18th century is really the age of um, the first public opinion, the the idea of a a public in the way that we think of today is born in the 18th century, that it is a, a group of people outside of the government. Who do not have access to the levers of power necessarily, but they do have access to the printing press, and so they are able to respond to their overlords uh, through the mechanism of um, you know uh, coffee sh- they meet in coffee shops and there 's the, this is also the great age of the broadside, which are basically like posters that you can put on the side of public buildings but it's it 's public speech. Uh, meant to be read by many, many people, the disembodied public of the 18th century. So the pamphlet emerges as the, uh, in this new ecosystem of possibility uh, of, of rising uh, literacy rates, not just for men, but for women, and of a kind of a format that is, I would say, the equivalent today is Twitter. Uh, which is having the same kinds of effects on our political fabric, which is that it's causing us to re-examine our fundamental truths. This short, easily harnessed format that can change public opinion overnight, which Paine's pamphlet does. So it's published in January of 1776 anonymously, and it sells out overnight 150,000 copies.
0: The text remains popular. It is the most widely reprinted document from the time period. One of the main reasons it's popular is that Paine touched on the universal natural rights of all people. In the introduction, Paine famously wrote that the cause of America is the cause of all mankind.
1: So I think that's another reason why this has transcended uh, time and and place in a way that so many of the other pamphlets of that time period have not done.
0: Could you walk us now about what the pamphlet itself is arguing Um What is he trying to convince people of?
1: Yeah. So he's convincing them basically of two big things. One is the need for independence, which they also call separation. So he boldly makes that claim by saying, you know, look, if you're going to just stay within the British empire, all these bad things are going to happen to you instead of all the good things that you've been imagining. He sketches this kind of dystopian future and he says things like, you know, um, you think that republics are more warlike, but in fact, it's monarchies that you know enroll us in all of these these various wars. By staying with Britain, you are then automatically against France and Spain. It's it's you know terminal enemies, etc. So he he says it's it's more um, valuable to you to go for independence than to stay within the British empire. And he sort of sketches out a way that they can do that. And and he does a lot of pep talking. Thomas Paine is the first person to come in and essentially deliver the first um, anti-colonial or post-colonial document to say... You can Brexit from the empire. You can secede from the union. He he supplies us with some of that initial vocabulary that's going to get used during subsequent Brexiting, secessionist, post-colonial movements.
0: This was a radical idea at the time. Empires ruled the world. Breaking free from one to form your own country was unheard of.
1: So that is extraordinary to say that the path of the future is not to stay within a very large and important empire that, that says it's a liberty-loving empire. You know, that's the rhetoric of British imperialism is to say, no, you need to get independence from it and then go ahead and make your own empire. So it's, it's also a, 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 an, an imperial document uh, in its own way, but the empire will face in a different direction. It will face westward across the United States uh, and, and its North American continent.
0: Payne's background made it easier to propose such a radical vision for America. He grew up on the other side of the Atlantic and didn't experience the struggles and conflicts of the American colonists until he was an adult. He had the advantage of experiencing the colonies with fresh eyes.
1: It's a little like you know, if you have a dysfunctional family, right, everybody gets used to it. It's like the frog in the slowly boiling pot of water, right? You're just like, yeah, my family always talks like this, blah, blah, blah. And it takes inviting someone over for a Thanksgiving feast for them to kind of pull you aside and say, you know, your uncle really is (laughs) totally crazy. You should not stand for this. This is so dysfunctional that you need to remove yourself. You need to get the frog out of the pot of water. And I think that's what happens with pain: is that he comes in to this society and and it is because he is so new that he sees it with fresh eyes in a way that the the warm frogs that are already there cannot see. Um, So, but that, you know, that kind of brings us to the second part of the pamphlet that I think is less well-recognized than it should be, which is that it is an anti-monarchical screed in an age that not only was deeply monarchical, but had been for 2,000 years and would continue to be so until the present day. (laughs) So um, he comes in and he not only heaps ridicule on of a British monarchy, but he shows that it is fundamentally part of a larger uh, injustice, which is that it, is, it, it derives the sources of its authority from a genealogical relationship to the past.
0: The second part of common sense criticizes the historical nature of monarchies. Paine highlights the fact that under monarchical rule, authority is based entirely on genealogy. If you're the son of a ruler, you become the next ruler. This power is based on a person's family legacy, not at all on their qualifications. This approach to power kept families, countries, and empires locked in the past.
1: And he says, no, that is fundamentally unjust. Life is for the living. It is not about the past. So this is a classic enlightenment document in that it, it takes a pair of scissors and it cuts off that family tree. And it says, the only thing that matters is now, life is for the living. And all of the traditions, monarchy, Christianity, etc., that rely on these genealogical connections to authority are fundamentally unjust and they prevent us from looking to the future. So we need to, um, you know, block all those, cut off all of those connections and instead ground our authority elsewhere. So here's where he comes in and I think is the first major propagator of what we know as state of nature theorizing. So these are philosophers like John Locke, in the 17th century, um, uh, Thomas Hobbes, and then Rousseau who say, well, if we don't ground our our authority in the king, where can we ground it? And so they invent this fiction called the state of nature, which is an, an origin point for human societies that is not historical, it, right, like it never happened. And it is also not religious. It is the Garden of Eden stripped of the fall narrative. So that's so liberating because, you know, you can do whatever you want with the garden, with the, the state of nature. And But it's familiar enough because it's kind of garden-y, you know, people go, yeah, I can think of the Garden of Eden. I know it's that, but I'll just take out the serpent and the man and the woman, and and instead populate it with a bunch of people, and they can build societies up from there.
0: Well, and instead of the, the fundamental consequence or, or motivation being sin, it's a desire for cooperation with equal members of a group.
1: That is exactly right. The uh, state of nature as a concept that emerges in the 17th and 18th century underlies all modern political revolutions because it, for the first time, gives you an operating political vocabulary for human activities that is not having them wallow in sin and from a fall, right, that that like everything is worse now than it was before. And instead it opens up this other tool, which is the idea of progress, that we as human beings, um, you know, the deity smiles upon us and our projects and um, the state of nature, you know, you can do what you want from, from there. You can decide to leave it and form contracts of society, contracts of government, or you can just stay in the state of nature. Uh, as they thought the American Indians had done, just living in the state of nature. But it's so liberating as a political language, we would not have had the American Revolution or the French Revolution or the Latin American independence movements or any of the modern movements that we know today without this conceit, this fiction of the state of nature because it is a fundamental reassessment of human nature, which is another term from the 18th century, human nature, um, that we're fundamentally good and that we deserve to live in happiness.
0: In Paine's time and before, government authority was seen as a divine creation. Kings, queens and emperors justified their positions by claiming that God had granted them power. The shift from divine rule to the state of nature gave more weight to human agency. Paine and other Enlightenment thinkers viewed government as created by the people, for the people.
1: So what we are gonna do now is we're gonna be concerned with the course of human events. And we are going to lay out the case for why we need to return to a state of nature, which is what the American Revolution is in July 4th, 1776. It is a return to a Lockean state of nature. Uh, as they await the formation of future governments. And so pain is totally in there, right? This is a pamphlet that lays out this really lovely picture of the state of nature um, as something that we can all happily live in once we've emancipated ourselves from this ruffian (laughs) in England.
0: Okay, so let's talk about now what happens once it's published. I mean, how did it start to change uh, the future of the colonies?
1: Well, first of all, it it very much irritated uh, the king and the British who start uh, publishing these counter pamphlets. Um, The main effect appears to have been that it allowed for a massive swaying of public opinion so that when um, the Second Continental Congress and the drive toward independence were sort of finally being put on the table, ultimate break with Britain, that they could be relatively sure of a broad base of public support behind them, that this was very exciting to people. If Payne's pamphlet had not been published, either independence would not have happened, that there would have been reconciliation. And Britain tried several times over the course of the war to bring olive branches to the colonies. But if there hadn't been uh, Payne's common sense, there either would not have been a revolution or the colonies might have been willing to uh, accept one of these olive branches and we would have been Canada. But, um, you know, Payne essentially raises the stakes so that they are not just about commercial prosperity, but they're about ultimate existential realities. I think that um, the cause of the revolution would not have been pushed forward with such a degree of um, alacrity, I guess. So we might have had the Declaration of Independence, but later, or not at all.
0: Part of the reason Payne's text was so influential was that it wasn't just about the American Revolution. It spoke out against monarchy across the board.
1: The Declaration of Independence is, has 28 grievances against one king. Payne's common sense has a full frontal assault on all monarchy at all time. And it's, so it's a much richer document intellectually, um, in that sense, and so it transcends its its time. And so you can use it, for example, in another revolution.
0: 13 years after Common Sense was first published, France began a revolution of their own. Similar to the American revolutionaries, the people of France wanted independence from their monarchical ruler, Louis XVI. Payne's ideas about the natural rights of man and the state of nature fueled the French revolutionaries. During this time, he wrote other texts arguing for human rights, such as the Rights of Man and the Age of Reason. What is the long durée influence of Common Sense and Paine's other writings since um, after after the French Revolution, going forward?
1: His greatest influence has really been in the United States. Uh, so I would say the only document that he wrote that has had an enduring value for people outside of academia, outside of stuff we teach to our students in college classes is Thomas Paine's common sense, Um, which, you know, as you, as you know, you can just sit down and read for a little bit with pleasure. Um, And it's a reminder that education is great, but you don't need a fancy education to say things that seem really true to a lot of people. If you speak, clearly and eloquently um, about wrongs that must be righted.
0: Imagine you're at a cocktail party. Imagine someone comes up to you and says, Professor Winter, how did Thomas Paine's common sense change the world? How do you respond to her in
1: one or two sentences? Thomas Paine changed the world because he changed hundreds of thousands of people's minds overnight about a couple of truths that they thought were fundamental to their lived reality. And they discovered by reading Thomas Paine that they were wrong.
0: It took an outsider's perspective to articulate and catalyze the fate of the American colonies. Without Paine, without common sense, there may not have been a United States as we know it today. His views on human rights and equality laid the groundwork for American independence and democratic revolutions worldwide. Rit Large is produced by Jack Pombrion and me, Zachary Davis, and is edited by Galen Beebe. We get help from Liza French. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Pecci. We're a member of Lithub Radio. Rit Large is a Lyceum original production. Join our discussion room in the Lyceum app to share your thoughts and hear what other listeners are saying. You can also find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There, you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.